So um, if you would, please stand for the reading of God's Word if you can. Um, We're going to read a a couple of verses here from the book of Galatians. We're trying to memorize these verses together as a church family over the course of the summer, and I feel like reading it repetitively is one of the best things that helps me remember stuff. So we're going to read that, and then we're going to spend our time this morning in John 16. So if you would... um, You can follow along with me. Galatians chapter 5, verse 22. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Then John 16, we'll be in verse 16 through 24. It says this. In a little while, you will see me no more, and then after a little while, you will see me. Some of his disciples said to one another, what does he mean by saying, in a little while, you will see me no more, and then after a little while, you will see me, and because I'm going to the Father. They kept asking, what does he mean by a little while? We don't understand what he's saying. Jesus saw that they wanted to ask him about this, so he said to them, Are you asking one another what I meant when I said, in a little while you will see me no more, and then after a little while you will see me? I tell you the truth, you will weep and mourn while the world rejoices. You will grieve, but your grief will turn to joy. A woman giving birth to a child has pain because her time has come, but when her baby is born, she forgets the anguish because of her joy that a child is born into the world. So with you, now is your time of grief, but I will see you again and you will rejoice and no one will take away your joy. And that day you will no longer ask me anything. I tell you the truth. My father will give you whatever you ask in my name. Until now, you have not asked for anything in my name. Ask and you will receive and your joy will be complete. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray for our students and let's pray for our VBS. God, we thankful, we're thankful for kids, we're thankful for students and the joy that they bring to our lives. And as this is just a crucial two weeks in um, these ministries in our church, we just ask that you'd be kind, Lord, that you would come and that you would, you would meet with our students as they're at camp. Lord, I pray that there would be deep friendships that are made as they are gone for a couple of days or even a week, that they would experience your presence with them, God, that you would be kind and show them what it looks like even now to live with you, to walk with you, to be in fellowship with you. I pray for our kiddos as they come in a week to be a part of EBS, Lord, that you would help them understand just how good a gift your church is to your people and that they would delight in it, God, that they, if they don't know you, Jesus, that they would come to know you they would love you, they would, they would find you beautiful, that they would, their eyes and their ears would be opened up to the extent to which you have loved them and they give their lives to you. Would you meet with us this morning, God? Be kind with us. Come and work inside of us. May we not leave this place without having experienced the goodness of Jesus in our life. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. You can be seated. So we're in the second week of our Fruit of the Spirit series. So if you're, this is your first time here, the Fruit of the Spirit, we just read through it in Galatians chapter 5. It's a list that Paul has written as a vision for the Christian life, all right? So if you are a Christian and you're walking with Jesus, 
there are a few different things that Jesus says he is going to produce in your life as you walk in fellowship with him. So if you go to a local jewelry store and you ask to see a diamond and they bring you a diamond, you look at it, you're going to be looking at one solitary figure, right? But they say there's four different ways that you're supposed to look at a diamond. You're supposed to look at the cut, you're supposed to look at the color, you're supposed to look at the uh, Clarity, and then the, the carrot, so the carrot size. There's four different ways. You're looking at one single object, but you're supposed to look at it in four different ways. Well, it's the same way with the fruit of the Spirit. It, it is listing out one life, but giving you four, nine different perspectives, nine different features of that Christian life that Jesus is going, going to be producing fruit. He's going to be producing work inside of his people. So last week, we looked at the first word, which is love. The Christian life is to be marked by love. And the second word that we're going to look at this morning is the word joy. The Christian life is to be marked by joy. When Paul writes that, he's assuming that the Christian life is going to be a joyful life. So as you walked in here this morning, I don't think I need to convince anyone that they want joy. Right? Amen? Like, you want joy in your life. If you have a pulse in here this morning... You want joy. If we had a poll as you walk through our church doors and we asked you, do you want joy in your life? I feel confident that the, it would be a unanimous vote that yes, I want joy in my life. We are all on a pursuit trying to find joy in our life. It's kind of an American infatuation that's going on. There's a number of statistics that prove this, all right? So Washington Post recently reported that America's self-help industry is worth $11 billion, $11 billion. So what is the promise of self-help industry? That if you want the life that you want, the only thing that's between you and that desire is you yourself. So if you follow our patterns, you follow our schemes, you follow the way that we lay before you, then you are gonna overcome yourself and whatever hindrances that you place before yourself and you're gonna get the body that you want or you're gonna get the success at your work, whatever, it's the promise that you will have the joy that you have been pursuing in your own life. That's the promise of the self-help industry, $11 billion. The PricewaterhouseCoopers company, which I had no idea what that was until this last week, apparently it's a consulting service, actually had someone come up and say, hey, that's like one of the four biggest businesses like in the world. And I had no idea, but whatever. So um, they say in 2017, the U.S. is expected to spend $632 billion on entertainment in a year. That's 30% of the world's expectation of $2 trillion spent on entertainment. So it's not just Americans that are infatuated with the pursuit of joy. It's a human epidemic. We all are in pursuit of joy. And the tricky thing about it is it's kind of like a greased up pig. Whenever you feel like you have it finally embraced, it slips away from you, doesn't it? It's fleeting. Joy is so fleeting. So if you are like into movies and you're looking forward to a movie like Star Wars that's supposed to be coming out later this year, there's all this anticipation that's being built up for it. You get to go watch it and there's a little bit of joy, right? But it's short-lived. There's this hint of, man, this is awesome. I love this. But the next day you're like, oh, what's next now, right? If you binge watch a TV show on on the television, it's awesome, it's amazing, but it doesn't fulfill you, does it? 
You always have to come back. What's the new show that I can watch? What's the next show I can binge watch? It never satisfies. Satisfies. The self-help industry. You may actually get the results that you want by buying that book, following the step-by-step process. You may get the body that you want, but it never satisfies. You're always left wanting. There's a poll, Harris poll, that came up with a happiness index, which I think is just kind of a funny thing to even do, but whatever, they did it. They started started doing this poll in 2008, and the poll is on a scale of 1 to 100, how happy are you? And the American culture ranked out at 31. 31. We spend billions of dollars in our pursuit of joy, and none of us, well, maybe 31 of us in here, are happy, right? We're all left wanting. Now, if this is something that's kind of intrinsic inside of us, if we are all, every single one of us, in pursuit of joy, there has to be a different pattern then, right? There has to be something else than the way that we've been going at it. And I think we find that in John 16 this morning, all right? So if joy is not rooted in what we can buy or what we can experience, I believe that joy is rooted in a person, in Jesus. It's rooted in a relationship with Jesus. Now, you may be thinking, all right, whatever, pastor. Of course, we're in church. Every answer to a question is Jesus, and it's right, right? But I want to unpack this a little bit for us because I think it's true. I think it's true, and I believe John 16 proves that to us, all right? So we're going to look at two things in this chapter. We're going to look at the promise of joy that comes from Jesus Once we meet the resurrected Jesus, there is a promise, a guarantee that joy will be yours in this life. And the second one is the growth of joy. There's not just this stagnation of joy in your life. God's desire is that joy would grow as you walk in relationship with him in this life. So we're going to look first at the promise of joy. And you see that in verse 16 through 22. We'll look at 16 through 20 first. It reads like this. In a little while... You will see me no more, and then after a little while, you will see me. Some of his disciples said to one another, what does he mean by saying, in a little while, you will see me no more, and then after a little while, you will see me, and because I'm going to the Father. I kept asking, what does he mean by a little while? We don't understand what he's saying. Jesus saw that they wanted to ask him about this, so he said to them, are you asking one another what I meant when I said, in a little while, you will see me no more, and then after a little while, you will see me. I tell you the truth, you will weep and mourn while the world rejoices. You will grieve, but your grief will turn to joy. So what in the world is Jesus saying here? It is really repetitive. There's constant rephrasing of things, right? It all centers around this little phrase, in a little while. The disciples are confused. What in the world is Jesus talking about? Well, I I think he's talking about two things here in relation to in a little while. The first one, in a little while you will not see me. Jesus is referencing his death. He's in his final conversations, his final meal with his disciples. He's going to the cross the very next day. And so he's going to die and he's going to be buried and they won't see him anymore. But after a little while, they will see him again because Jesus is going to come back to life. He's going to be resurrected from the grave. He'll be dead for three days and after he rises from the grave, he's going to go and visit his disciples and they will see him Once again, so Jesus is saying, I'm going to die and you're going to be a mess over it. There's going to be weeping and mourning and sorrow, but after a little while, I'm coming back to life and your weeping will turn to joy. 
Now, I, I believe the promise of joy is in those last little words. You will grieve, but your grief will turn to joy. Jesus doesn't say that you might find your grief turn from grief to joy. He doesn't say that it possibly could turn to joy. He says it will turn to joy. Jesus is issuing a promise, a guarantee that when we meet the resurrected Jesus, joy is sure to follow. Joy is the response every single time when we meet the resurrected Jesus. So you have to wonder, all right, we, we celebrate Easter every single year, so we know it's a factual resurrection that actually happened, but was, were the disciples actually filled with joy whenever they saw Jesus? And we, we can find the answer to that just a few chapters later. John 20, 19 through 20, Jesus is resurrected from the grave, and he comes to visit his, his disciples, and he says, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. And after he said this, he showed them his hands and his side, and the disciples were what? They were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. And this is John, one of the apostles of Jesus. So it's not a lie. John is reporting it himself. We are overjoyed at the sight, at the visitation of Jesus as he's resurrected from the grave. Joy is non-optional when it comes to meeting the resurrection, the resurrected Jesus. And it really shouldn't come as any surprise to us. Jesus is the champion of joy. If you look at his life and ministry throughout the Gospels, a theme that you will find for the life of Jesus is joy. Jesus was always the life of the party, all right? I mean, people were constantly fighting to be around Jesus. Everywhere Jesus went, there, he was always surrounded by a crowd. And it wasn't just by the moral people. It was of people in all stages, walks of life. Everybody wanted to be around Jesus. One of the big harps that the moral people had on Jesus is that he was a glutton and a drunkard because he was always eating and he was always drinking. He was always enjoying life. He was always going to people's houses and he always wanted good food. He always wanted good food. Constantly sitting down with people, eating, drinking, and enjoying life. Jesus' ministry starts with a party. In John chapter 2, Jesus is at a wedding feast, and a wedding feast is seven days long during this point in time, all right? And what happens is at the end of that wedding feast, the wine is run out, and so his mom comes and says, hey, Jesus, you can deal with this problem. Turn this water into wine. Jesus does it, and the wine is taken to the master of the feast, and what does he say? You saved the best for the last. Jesus not only keeps the party going, he makes it better. That's what Jesus does. Joy is the theme of Jesus in his life. So whenever we meet the resurrected Jesus, it should be no surprise that joy is a response, the byproduct of what we experience. Listen, whenever you meet the resurrected Jesus, your grief turns to joy. The conviction that you feel that you've lived a life that was not according to the original purposes that Jesus had set up for us, the sin in your life, the grief, the sorrow that you have over that. Whenever you meet the resurrected Jesus, your grief turns to joy. If you go anywhere else aside from Jesus, the response that you get may be an instant, short gratification, a short sense of joy, 
but what follows is shame and guilt. If you want long-lasting, sustainable joy, the only person that you can go to is Jesus, the resurrected Jesus. That's the response when you meet Jesus. And it's not just a short thing. It's not just this instantaneous thing. It's a lifelong thing. And he gives us a pattern for how we are to live in this joy with Jesus. You see this in the passage that we looked at last week. So last week we looked at love. John 15 talks about love. Look at verses 9 through 11 with me. It says this, as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now remain in my love. That's the first thing, first part of the pattern. Remain in my love, abide in my love. The second, if you obey my commands, obey my commands is the second one. You will remain in my love just as I have obeyed my Father's commands and remain in his love. And here's the byproduct. I've told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. So the pattern that Jesus sets up for us is that we remain in his love. We abide in his love. Last week we looked at what does this really mean, okay? So Pastor James said it's kind of like the early stages of a love relationship. You have that infatuation stage, right? So my wife and I, we started dating when we were sophomores in high school. We went to a really large high school. Thousands of students were there. So it was a pretty large school, pretty spread out. But between every single class, we did everything that we could to try to meet up between classes so that I could walk her to class because I just wanted to be around Cherish. I, I love that girl. I wanted to be around her. I, I was infatuated with her. And what happens with us whenever we experience the love of Jesus, we can't get enough. We keep going back. There's no love that you can experience deeper than the love that Jesus has shown us. There's a song that we sing here called How Deep the Father's Love for Us, and it reads like this. Behold the man upon the cross. It was my sin that held him there. He stayed on the cross willingly for you and for me so that we could experience just how deep God's love for us really is. And whenever you experience that, you can't get enough. You keep going back. You remain in his love. That's the first part of the pattern of living a life of joy with Jesus is that you remain in his love. You can't get enough of it. And the second one is that you obey his commands. So my house has some house rules. We have two little boys. They're rambunctious. They're all over the place. And so we, we have rules, not to be strict parents, but because we want them to flourish in our home. So when my Seth goes and gets all the pillows in our house and tries to stack them on the stairwell, climb up the stairwell and go headfirst down the stairs, that's a house rule that you don't do because we don't want him to die, right? We want him to flourish. We want him to have joy in our house. We have different slides. We'll bring those in for you, buddy. You can do whatever you want, but hey, we have house rules and you're not gonna die, all right? That's on us if we do that. We have house rules. Jesus created this world and so he knows how to live the best life in this world. He's created rules. He's given us commands to follow, not because he wants to be a killjoy, but because he wants us to flourish in this life, because he wants us to experience joy. So whenever we remain in his love, when we come back to him continuously, time and time again, because we can't get enough of his love, and when we obey his commands, because it's the best life that we can live here, he knows, he designs it. The byproduct is joy. So this last week, one of the evenings, 
my family was going to an activity. We live over by the zoo. We drive down Poplar Level. Some of the yards are a little bit longer on Poplar Level. The houses are built a little bit further away because it's a pretty busy street. And I, I saw this amazing, amazing thing. There was an older man and an older woman. He was mowing the lawn, and he was just walk, she was just walking alongside her husband as he was mowing the lawn. And there was just just ecstatic face. They were really enjoying each other's presence. That's the picture I get of this pattern for the Christian life. That you have someone that you want to spend so much time with that you're willing to walk alongside of them in the yard while they're mowing the lawn, right? My wife looked at me and she said, I love you, but that's not happening, right? But she, this woman, she loved it. It, it wasn't just staying in his presence, though. They were doing something. They were, they were mowing the lawn. They were doing life together. That's exactly the picture that is painted for us in living life with Jesus, because as we remain in his presence, we remain in his love, and as we obey his commands, we do life together, the byproduct is joy. I'll forever have that picture ingrained in my head of this older couple just mowing the lawn together, this woman just walking by her husband, just because she had a sheer joy of being in his presence. That's the picture, that's the pattern that's set up for us. And it's a promise, it's a guarantee. You live in this. You experience a lasting joy. Now, there's a misconception still, though, I I think we have whenever we think about the joy of Christ. And this this is it, right? And I think we all struggle with this. Even if you have all the answers to the spiritual questions, I think we still struggle with this. I still struggle with this, all right? The misconception is is that if we come to Jesus, if we get on Jesus' team, that life is going to get easier. Life is going to get easier. We associate joy with comfort, don't we? And so when we think we come to meet Jesus, we enter into a relationship with Jesus, that pain and suffering are automatically going to decrease if we live according to the patterns that he set for us. I struggle with this. Um, We have two little boys, Seth and Sutton, but before we had them, my wife and I experienced some miscarriages. So My wife and I, we started dating when we were sophomores in high school. We got married six and a half years later, never broke up. We were always together, got married right out of college. And by God's grace, we obeyed his commands and we didn't sleep together until we got married. That's the hardest thing, one of the hardest things I've ever done, right? So, uh, but it happened, by God's grace. When we had those miscarriages, I was furious because we did everything right, We did everything right. And what made it worse is that there were people around us that were really close to us that had gotten pregnant, and they they weren't even married yet, and here we were experiencing two miscarriages. I was furious. I did everything right, and I was still experiencing pain and suffering and hardship. We wanted a family, and we did everything right. And it didn't seem like it was going to happen. One of the things I love about the joy that Jesus offers us is it's honest. It's real. And he gives us an illustration to understand what this picture of joy in this life really looks like. And it's through an illustration of a woman in labor. Look, at, look with me in verses 21 through 22. It says this. A woman giving birth to a child has pain because her time has come. 
But when her baby is born, she forgets the anguish because of her joy that a child is born into the world. So with you, now is your time of grief, but I will see you again and you will rejoice and no one will take your joy away. I think the reality, the honesty of what joy in this life looks like with Jesus in a broken world lies in this phrase, this verse. When her baby is born, she forgets the anguish because of her joy that a child is born into the world. Jesus doesn't say that the woman's joy is eliminated or her pain is eliminated. He says that her, her pain is forgotten. So when I've been in a delivery room a couple of times now, all right, so I, I realize that pain doesn't end when the baby arrives. Ladies, can I get an amen? It's, it's not how it works. But what I have seen is my wife take two of our, ch- our children into her arms and she gets to hold them, she gets to kiss them, she gets to smell them for the very first time and her pain has melted away because of the joy of having that, bi- that baby in her arms. The pain's not gone but she forgets about it because the joy overwhelms the pain. So it is with the Christian life. Jesus is not promising us better circumstances when we come and meet him, but he is offering us a better life. I look back on that time when we had miscarriages and realize that God was not obligated to me. All right, God is continually growing me. I'm still learning about this. And I'm realizing that our marriage is strengthened and it's better. It's a better life because we follow the commands of Jesus. I don't have regrets of previous relationships because Cherish and I stayed together and we, we refrained from sleeping with one another before we had our marriage day. And it's a better life. But it doesn't mean that I am due to better circumstances. The the paradox of the joy of Christianity is it makes room for both laughter and weeping. One Christian author puts it like this, one of the most interesting and remarkable things Christians can learn is that laughter does not exclude weeping. Christian joy is not an escape from sorrow. Pain and hardship still come, but they are unable to drive out the happiness of the redeemed. There's plenty of suffering in the Christian life. The joy comes because God knows how to wipe away tears and in his resurrection work create a smile of new life. The promise of joy is that no one, no one, nothing can take your joy away, including hard, difficult circumstances. Pain in the Christian life is a temporary condition, but joy in relationship with Jesus is eternal. It always overcomes. It's too strong, too powerful for anything in this life, any hardship, any struggle to quench it of its power. The promise of the Christian life is joy. The pattern is that we remain in Christ's love, we obey his commands, and the byproduct will be joy, a life live with Jesus. doesn't exclude hardship. Rather, it provides a promise that hardship will never overcome your joy. So that's the first thing. 
The second thing that we learn about joy in this passage is that Jesus doesn't just initially give us joy and then it remains there, it remains stagnant. No, Jesus has a vision, a picture of a growth of our joy in our relationship and experience with him. And we see that in the final two verses in this chapter 16. It reads like this, verses 23 through 24. In that day, you will no longer ask me anything. I tell you the truth, my Father will give you whatever you ask in my name. Until now, you have not asked for anything in my name. Ask and you will receive and your joy will be complete. You want to grow in your joy in your relationship with Jesus? It's prayer. The path is prayer. There's two phrases I want us to look at here. The first one is praying in Jesus' name, all right? One of the joys Jesus gives us when we meet him is unlimited access to our Father who is in heaven. That's what praying in Jesus' name is all about, unlimited access. On our own, we do not have the credibility to enter into God's presence. We have to have someone with a greater credibility, the perfect credibility, and that is the credibility of Jesus. So when we pray in Jesus' name, we pray on behalf of his credibility and we enter into God's presence. And there's a, there's a, a vision of what this looks like that I love that I got from a guy by the name of Paul Miller. And I want to read it for you because I, I think it's a beautiful picture for us of what it means to pray in, <clears throat> in Jesus' name. It says this, imagine that your prayer is a poorly dressed beggar reeking of alcohol and body odors, stumbling toward the palace of the great king. You become your prayer. As you shuffle toward the, bar, the barred gate, the guards stiffen. Your smell has preceded you. You stammer out a message for the great king. I want to see the king. Your words are barely intelligible, but your wisp, you whisper one final word, Jesus. I come in the name of Jesus. Now at the name of Jesus, as if by magic, the palace comes alive. The guards snap to attention, bowing low in front of you. Lights come on, the door flies open. You're ushered into the palace and down a long hallway into the room, throne room of the great king who comes running to you and wraps you in his arms. When we pray in Jesus' name, we have unlimited access to our Father who is in heaven. When we meet Jesus, we are ushered into the family of God. God wants a relationship with you. And he's gone to the greatest of lengths in order for that to be true. He sent his one and his only son to die on the cross in your place so that you might have a relationship with a God. He wants to spend time with you. You have a, a relationship with your father who is in heaven that is intimate. And the only, time, the only way that we can spend time with him is coming in Jesus' name. Now listen, you don't create intimacy. You make space for it. Are you praying? Are you praying in Jesus' name? Are you coming to the God, the Father who is in heaven, who longs to be with you and spending time with him? Are you remaining in his love? Are you abiding in his love? Are you coming back time and time again? Because he wants that from you. He wants to spend time with you. He desires you. Not because of what you've done, not because of who you are. He, he created you. He loves you. You are his child. He wants to spend time with you. You have unlimited access to your God who is in heaven because we can pray 
in Jesus' name. That's the first thing. As we do that, our joy will increase. It will grow. The second thing that Jesus says here, and it's an extravagant promise. It's one that makes us uncomfortable. He says this, ask and you will receive and your joy will be complete. He says this six different times throughout the Gospels. It's not that he says this one time and wishes that he could take it back. Jesus says it repeatedly, all right? And I think we have a really hard time with this promise, this guarantee, because we want to put this statute of limitations. We want to put these rules, these safeguards on it, because if it's really true, people are really going to take advantage of this, aren't they? That's what we think. We think people are going to take advantage of it. They're going to abuse it. So we want to put these laws, we want to put these rules around it, myself included. I I get uncomfortable by this guarantee that if I ask, that I will receive and my joy will be made complete. But Jesus says it six different times, and I don't think he's worried about people abusing it. There's a couple of reasons why. The first one is if it takes reflection to answer the question, what do you want? If somebody comes and asks you the question, what do you want in this life? You stop and you think about it, don't you? Are you going to ask for a life that is horrible and horrendous? No. You want a life that is going to bring you joy, happiness, fullness. One Christian author puts it like this. Why do we have to spend our lives striving to be something that we would never want to be if we only knew what we wanted? Why do we waste our time doing things which are just the opposite of what we were made for? If you really take time and you think about what you really want in this life and you go and pray and bring that to Jesus, he's saying, I will give it to you because he's for your joy. It's not a stagnant thing. He wants it to continue to grow and increase. So we can come and we can ask. He's not worried that we're going to abuse it because if you really think about it, You're going to come and you're going to ask something that means a joyful life for you. And that's what he's for. He's for your joyful life. The second reason I don't think he's overly concerned with us abusing it is because God loves to give good gifts, especially to his children. We get so freaked out that we are praying the wrong things or praying the wrong way, and it hinders us from coming to God and asking things that we will find ultimately delightful and enjoyable. We forget or we ultimately disbelieve that God relishes in the opportunity to give his children good gifts. We don't need to worry so much about the way that we phrase things, the way that we say things, because God is not overly concerned with that. One pastor implores prayer like this. Don't be afraid that you ask for the wrong thing. Of course you will. Right? Like, you're going to ask for the wrong thing. You're, you're a human being. You, do, you don't have the insights that God has. You're going to ask for the wrong thing. But God tempers the outcome with his incomprehensible wisdom. Cry, ask, and appeal. You'll get many answers. Finally, where you do not get an answer or where the answer is not what you want, use prayer to enable you to rest in his will. Listen, if Jesus is the savior of your soul, He's a savior of your prayers too. You can come and you can ask whatever. 
That's the word he uses. Ask whatever, and I will give it to you, and your joy will be complete. You don't have to be overly concerned with the phrasing of your prayers because Jesus will make them perfect. And where you don't get an answer, you can come and rest in him because you can know that ultimately he has your joy at interest. He wants to increase your joy. You don't have a God that is a a killjoy. You have a God who is for your joy. And you can live in that promise. So to conclude, I have two questions for us, all right? Two questions. The first one is this. Has Jesus turned your grief into joy? Every single one of us at some point in time is going to come to a crossroads where we recognize that we have not lived life according to the pattern or the way that Jesus originally said it to be. There's going to be grief and there's going to be sorrow over things that you've done, the life that you've lived. Even if you've tried your hardest you're completely incapable of following the pattern that you're supposed to live. There's going to be grief. There's going to be sorrow over your sin. And if you are going to any other avenue, place, in order for your grief to be turned to joy, it's only going to be temporary, and the end result is going to be shame or guilt. Have you come to meet the resurrected Jesus in order that he will turn your grief into joy? that's not you, I want to ask, would you even consider it this morning? We'll have a couple that is outside these doors to my left, your right, except for the section, your left too. You can go out there after we pray. You can talk with them. They can help you think through, dialogue, and even pray through what it looks like to have a relationship with Jesus, for him to turn your grief into joy. Do not leave this place, if that's you, without considering, have I come to Jesus to turn my grief into joy? The second question is this. If you feel sleepy as a Christian, if you're not experiencing the joy of a relationship with Jesus, how are you praying? How are you praying? Are you worried about saying the right things, doing the right things? Is that hindering you from prayer at all? Like, are you, are you just not spending time with God? Are you not coming back to him time and time again? Do you feel like you're annoying God? Do you feel like you're obnoxious, that you're just this thorn in his side? Because that's not the way that God feels about you. He says, ask and you will receive, and I want to make your joy complete. So how are you praying? Listen, we all want joy We all want blessing. We all want happiness in this life. God's ways and God's presence are where we experience the happiness that lasts. Joy cannot be bought. Joy cannot be experienced in this entertainment industry. No, joy is rooted in Jesus, a relationship with Jesus. Step into the promise. He guarantees it, and he is for your joy. Let's pray.